Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, everyone. This is your host, Michael Stone, and you are listening to We Earth Radio. My guest today is Dr. Jeremy Narby. He's the co-author of Plant Teachers with Indigenous Elder Raphael Chanchare Pizuri. He became an early pioneer of ayahuasca research while living with the Ashaninka people of Peruvian Amazon in the 1980s. He studied anthropology at Stanford University and now lives in Switzerland and works as Amazonian Projects Director for Nouvelle Planete, a nonprofit organization that promotes the economic and cultural empowerment of indigenous people. Jeremy is also the author of award-winning book, The Cosmic Serpent, DNA and the Origins of Knowledge, which was originally published in 1998. And today we're gonna talk about his new book, Plant Teachers, Ayahuasca, Tobacco, and the Pursuit of Knowledge. Jeremy, welcome. Thank you, Michael. Great to meet you. I just love your book and I like to get some background. Maybe you can tell us about your journey in this field and how it started and why you wrote this book with uh, Raphael Tancheri. Well, I guess the, I've been an anthropologist now for, uh, well, it depends when you start counting, but I, I started doing my field work with the Ashaninka people in the Peruvian. Ashaninka, okay. Ashaninka, okay. Uh, in 1984, so that's 37 years ago. And it, it's true that I did not go to uh, live with the Ashaninka and study their points of view about the rainforest because I, was, I wanted to put an emphasis on ayahuasca or tobacco or any of these things. Actually, I was there as a politically engaged anthropologist who, who wanted to demonstrate that indigenous Amazonian people used their rainforest rationally and therefore deserved the right to own their lands that were being taken away by big so-called development projects financed by international development money. But the Ashaninka themselves, like all the other indigenous people living in the Peruvian Amazon, claim that part of their knowledge about plants and about animals comes from psychoactive plants like tobacco and ayahuasca. Hmm. Um, they talk about these plants as teachers, they talk about them like scientists might talk about microscopes. This is how we know. We ingest these plants and then we see some images and we learn things. I was uh, deeply interested in the indigenous Amazonian point of view on plants and animals, deeply interested in their system of knowledge and, and struck by the, the fact that how different it was from our own, uh, so much so that actually the university-trained rational observer at that point could not even take their point of view seriously. In other words, 
if you believe that there is verifiable information in your hallucinations, then you are by definition psychotic. So once again, there was this, uh, I ran right into at the beginning of my uh, anthropological career in 1985, into this kind of paradox or, or dead end. Here were people living in the most biologically diverse place on earth. Even back then, their knowledge about plants was widely recognized and used by the pharmaceutical industry. But we couldn't even have a conversation with them about the origin of their knowledge because it contradicted the principles of our system of knowledge. Mm. Well, it took me a few years. I wrote a dissertation after two years of field work. I went back to Stanford University and wrote a dissertation that hardly mentioned the ayahuasca as a source of knowledge. Certainly the, it, at that point in time, you did not, uh, that was not the way to start a, a young career in anthropology by taking indigenous hallucinogens too seriously. You know, the, the idea was if uh, I spoke sometimes to some colleagues like, you know, well, the indigenous people say that they take these things and they have visions and they get knowledge from it. And the answer would be, well, you don't mean to say that you actually take them seriously, do you? Right. Well, so then I noticed that nobody else in the profession was taking it seriously. Then I noticed that I myself had a hard time. Nobody was talking about it. Maybe there were some people taking it seriously, but they weren't saying so. And I wasn't saying so. After writing, getting a, a dissertation, you, so you become a doctor, you know, it means you know more. But I'd been unable to even put the question on the table, uh, the, the question of the origin of their knowledge as they themselves uh, speak about it. Mm. And so I kind of sat with that. You know, I was in no hurry. Uh, I actually had a pretty remarkable ayahuasca experience, which I described in the first chapter of The Cosmic Serpent uh, a quarter of a century ago. But then after that, it, it was almost like it was too much. It, uh, I chickened out. I I didn't look into it much more whilst I was in the field. Um, I did go back to my university and write a dissertation about the rational uses of Ashaninka, of the resources by Ashaninka people. And then I became um, uh, working for the Swiss NGO Nouvelle Planète, New Planet in French, as an Amazonian projects director as of 1990, raising funds for the demarcation of indigenous territories. Once again, arguing in public that these were the only people who knew how to use the rainforest rationally and therefore deserved the right to own their lands. Rationally means productively, but without destroying it. Mm -hmm. So if you want to protect the rainforest, I was already arguing back then, the best way to do it is to finance the demarcation and land titling of indigenous territories mm -hmm. because they know how to use the rainforest rationally. Well, I raised a whole bunch of funds on that uh, um, argument. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and got a whole bunch of territories demarcated. But after three or four years of, of doing this, I realized that, you know, I, I was just as much as anybody not talking about how the indigenous people themselves talk about the origin of their knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed to me that not that this was a job for Superman. No, this was a job for, for uh, Mr. Unaffiliated with any university working for a, a neutral, small, independent Swiss NGO. And I, I just felt that it was a question of, of human rights and basic intercultural respect. So here are these people at this point, like 1993, the big gathering in Rio had already happened. 
Governments were signing conventions of biodiversity that recognized the knowledge of indigenous people and in particular indigenous Amazonian people. Everybody was suddenly talking about the knowledge of indigenous Amazonians, but nobody was talking about the hallucinatory origin of part of this knowledge mm. as the indigenous people themselves talked about it. So this was a job for Mr. Independent Anthropologist, I told myself. If I don't start talking about this, who is? You know, one of the things, Jeremy, that I love about your book is that that deep respect for the indigenous wisdom at the same time looking at it with a eye of a scientist, you know, looking at that that sense and so many areas we we push away knowledge like that and and there's so much incredible wisdom in the in the Amazonian perspective. Well, you know, I, I thank you, but what I'd say about that is that for, for me, the experience of field work, which is so living with Ashaninka people, mm -hmm. uh, it was painfully obvious that these barefoot Indians knew so much more about how to get around the rainforest, which plants were which, what were the dangers, uh, how do you use a branch to turn it into a tool, uh, how do you build a house, how do you find remedies? How do you feed yourself? And that I was a complete idiot in their world. And, you know, if you're just honest, you, you may think, okay, well, I'm from uh, Stanford University and I know what a molecule is. And, and these people, uh, you know, have never even been to school or something. But in, in their world, it was just, uh, so the deep respect came from, you know, the, these people have knowledge about the rainforest that leaves even the most advanced ethnobotanists in the dust. And so if we're just going to be real about, you know, so what are we talking about? Knowledge about the rainforest? It's just obvious that uh, indigenous Amazonian people, at least when I, in the community where I was living, these people knew more than most of the doctors of Harvard, Oxford, and Cambridge uh, combined, not to mention Stanford. So, you know, uh, I know I consider myself a realist on that count. In other words, I, I don't think it, it was particularly courageous or particularly anything. It was just, you know, to, to me, that, that was painfully obvious that they had deep knowledge, but that wasn't recognized by the outside world, strangely enough, probably because of racism. I mean, to, to put it really simply, you know, people have had a hard time taking Indian seriously, African seriously. And I say people, I'm talking about Western intellectuals, finally. But actually, as a, as a young Western intellectual, I felt like completely stupid in their environment. And actually, that's kind of how they treated me, too. They thought I was pretty stupid. You know, they, they thought actually that I couldn't be as stupid as I pretended to be. You know, they'd, they'd come over and they'd say, ooh, those... Um, leather-lined rubber boots of yours. Uh, how did you make those? Um, well, look, you know, I, 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 di I didn't make them, I bought them, but so, so then how would you go about making them? Say, well, look, you know, I don't really know uh, how one actually does it. I, I can't really tell you. And, you know, they'd look at each other like, this guy just doesn't want to share his trade secrets with us. You know, he, he can't be as stupid as he, as he sounds. <laughs> let's, get into, let's get into talking a little bit about your relationship to the medicine. 
in your book, you talk about your first experience with the tobacco paste. Uh, mm. Maybe we can jump into a little bit about that, what, what tobacco paste is and what your experience was, because I think that was quite astounding. That would be a bit of awakening. Well, you know, I'll, I'll say that uh, I smoked a cigarette uh, in the forest with my friends when I was 10, and I thought it was disgusting. My father was a chain smoker who gave up and was a, a zealous anti-smoker. My mother used to smoke menthol cigarettes hiding outside. Um, you know, I was like uninterested in, in tobacco. Not at all my plant. Uh, I, cannabis, I thought, was uh, interesting. But tobacco, forget it. Yeah. Um, and, and, but w when I arrived in the Peruvian Amazon, the, I mean, for the Ashanika, tobacco is, is, is the number one plant. B before uh, ayahuasca, the, the word for doctor in Ashaninka is sherry, piari. Sherry means tobacco. Piari is piai, it's a doctor or one who knows. You know, you have a problem, you go and see the tobacco doctor and, um, and then it's usually a, a he, he'll smoke, he'll blow some on you, he'll choose some, he'll think it over, he'll use it as a diagnostic, he might even use it on you as a painkiller. It's a kind of an all-purpose medicine plant that way. Except that the plant in question, this is where we're a long way away from the weakened Virginia tobacco that Europeans and then North Americans of European origin sort of tamed, as it were, the, this Nicotiana rustica that comes from South America that these people are working with contains 20 times more nicotine, for example, than a Virginia blonde uh, tobacco. Myself, my parents, uh, most people in the West have learned about tobacco or interacted with tobacco via industrial cigarettes. So this is a a watered down and then all sauced up with hundreds of different chemicals product that is designed to give you a minimal nicotine delivery, just enough to tickle your neurons, not enough to actually get you to go anywhere. So that actually they're, they're designed so that 20 or 30 minutes later, you want to tickle your neurons again. Because actually with one of these shamanic cigars, for example, you don't, I wouldn't want to smoke another one 20 minutes later. I wouldn't even want to smoke another one two years later because this, this tobacco would be actually my, my real tobacco experience was with this, uh, with, with the old shaman teacher of the fellow who was my main informant and himself a practicing tobacco shaman who was 47 years old at the time. His old teacher was maybe 80 and we went and visited this this old gentleman one, one day. And, and there he was sitting on his mat and he had a gourd with a, a stick in it. And in the gourd was his tobacco paste. And this is the, uh, the classical Ashaninka tobacco shaman or tabaquero. And so th there he was. I mean, he was so old that he didn't even know how old he was because mm -hmm. he, he was born before the Ashaninka uh, started counting, you know, probably at the beginning, at the beginning of the century like 1905 or something. This, this old guy was a, a trickster. The first thing he said to me in Ashaninko uh, was um, father-in-law, you know, the guy was three times my age. 
So it was a joke, I thought. So I said, yes, kind of playing along. And he thought that was hilarious. And then he asked me the same question like 20 times in a row. It was almost like a, a form of hypnosis. So I thought, okay, after the 20th time, you know, I'll, I'll sort of um, put an end to this and um, asked him if I could try his tobacco paste. So that's how it happened. And not to be outdone, I took a, a big, good sticks worth of, of his, it looks like sort of uh, molasses or something, uh, but it, it ta doesn't taste sweet at all. It's extremely bitter. And I put this uh, under my lips. I learned later on that night from my informant that his question actually meant, can I sleep with your daughters? <laughs> you know, so the joke was on me, but I, I didn't even, so how, how stupid, this, so the anthropologist, there's the anthropologist. So I thought, okay, look, I'll just let these two guys get on with their business. And so there I was with my tobacco and then staring at, at the sort of the garden and, and the chickens and stuff. And, you know, the, and that is doing field work. You, you sit there and people talk in a language you don't necessarily understand and you, you don't know what's going on. And, you know, you just sit there and, and you space out sometimes or, or you're bored or whatever. But at this point, I started realizing that, like, my teeth started seeming to be sharp and there were, the taste in my mouth was like blood. And, and I kind of, I liked it. And then I felt my, my whiskers seemed to be getting longer and my, my belly was filled with like, with like this warm, almost like predatory kind of energy. I started looking at the chickens that were clocking around and, and then decided not to attack them, <laughs> you know? And then I thought, yeah, because you know, when, you know, the tobacco paste is strong when the anthropologist starts attacking the chickens, you know? <laughs> So um, all of this was going on in my uh, tobacco-activated uh, brain and body. Even though I, I didn't believe uh, an, uh, an inch in any of such things, like it, it, there, I, my body was, uh, had the impression that there were, I was turning a partly into a kind of feline. And I, could, I felt what it might feel like to be a powerful feline. And it was a very uh, marking, uh, something that was uh, a very actually pretty agreeable, pretty warm. Uh, I was chuckling, I was filled with energy, uh, you know, uh, and it lasted 15 minutes or so. And I can say that, uh, frankly, it, it was such a deep imprint on my body mind, that I've been I can I can conjure that feline feeling almost whenever I want, I can, I, I can go back into a place similar to that. And, you know, I think I know what it might feel like to be a feline, not saying I believe I turned into a cat, but just that, that kind of uh, experience. And it's true. That's how the Ashaninka talked about it. He took his tobacco paste and turned into a Jaguar, you know, it's kind of almost matter of fact. So then people say, well, was this suggestion then? You must have heard that the Ashaninkas say that so forth. I didn't really believe in, in these kinds of things. And then when it started happening, I was observing it on my body. You know, I actually, now that I've read more about tobacco, and you can, you can check it out in, in the, the, the book Plant Teachers, it's clear that uh, nicotine has a powerful effect on all kinds of hormones in our body, including adrenaline. And, so let's and talk about that a little bit. The... Um... Ashaninka perspective on on tobacco, 
on the soul and the spirit of tobacco and the mother of tobacco. These things you talk about in your book, the different types of tobacco and, and how they're different, the health effects, the dangers. Maybe give us a little overview of that. Yeah, well, the, the first thing to say before giving an overview is that these concepts are delicate and difficult to talk about with uh, any certitude, like in English and in a kind of a Western culture. I mean, it's not like we're talking about a metal pipe and you can cut it. And, you know, basically everybody can agree that a metal pipe is a metal pipe and then you cut it and it's, it does this or that. It leaks or it doesn't leak. You know, there's there's a kind of a, a material reality that I think most people can agree on, on about pretty basic things. But here, the let's just say science objectifies plants. Indigenous Amazonian people and other indigenous people around the world personify them. And these are different approaches. I actually think they're complementary. The indigenous Amazonian approach is to say that a plant like ayahuasca, a plant like tobacco, indeed most plants, have at this what we would call the species level, a kind of personality. That's the, the most satisfactory English word I've found. One of the words that they use when it's translated, because so in the Peruvian Amazon, you have like 50 different indigenous cultures. They speak different languages. The words change from one language to another. Um, and um, yes, what seems to be at the heart of what they are saying, and anthropologists also say this, that what's in the heart of animism or a shamanic worldview is recognizing the person inside plants and animals. I put that in English as, there's somebody home. That's what that means. Mm -hmm. Inside that blade of grass, there's somebody home. In other words, something like a personality uh, ca ca capable of perceiving and then deciding and communicating. And this has become, it, it's become clear to scientists that plants do this, that they perceive, communicate, remember, decide, mm -hmm. and they do all this without a brain. And so they are, even science now recognizes that plants are more than just kind of passive objects. But science is still balking at considering plants like persons. Science is starting to recognize some animal species as persons. So then there's this big question of what does it, what does it mean to be a person? And then philosophers discuss this. Some give the answer. Uh, if you have a point of view, <clears throat> you are a person. Well, yes, that is what the uh, Amazonians are saying. They're saying these different plants, for example, have a point of view. Tobacco has a point of view. I, I still think, so we're talking about the presence of person. I still think that personality is a pretty good word. So the indigenous people, they talk about the owner of tobacco, the mother of tobacco, the father of tobacco. Anthropologists translate this as the spirit of tobacco. I actually don't think spirit is a very good word, but, you know, because it's a, a Latin word, it refers to the breath of God. And by definition in the dictionary, it, it uh, implies an immaterial principle. Spirit, a frankly European concept, is uh, built on an opposition between matter and non-matter. In indigenous thought, like among the Ashaninka, you, you, what is the word among Ashaninka people for? these invisible entities that animate living beings, like the owner of tobacco, they are maninkari. Maninkari in Ashaninka means those who are hidden. 
it means that you usually don't see them, but that with ayahuasca and with tobacco, you can see them. Most of the time they're invisible, but they can be made visible. We note that this has nothing to do with being immaterial. So calling the maninkari that the Ashaninka talk about spirits is, is putting on to their concept an opposition between matter and non-matter that isn't there. In fact, in their view, these entities are not that immaterial. In fact, they animate living beings and they're part and parcel of living beings because when they leave living beings, the beings die and, and become cadavers. That's why it's complicated. You're just sort of strolling out of the library, going into the Ashaninka world and saying, oh, you must be talking about spirits here. Ah, you're talking about the spirit of tobacco. So tell me about the spirit of this plant, you uh, superstitious animist, will you? But actually, no, they're, they're not talking about sort of immaterial uh, ghosts or something. They're saying, and actually in, in some indigenous languages, the, the word that they use to refer to the essence of a plant is the same word that they use to refer to the, the stuff that's right at the heart inside the plant that, that comes out into the water when you boil. It's the, the, the plant's essence in a material sense and also in this kind of personality sense in some indigenous languages. If we're going to speak English about the Amazonian concepts of these beings, like the mother of tobacco, I think if you, if you don't do all the, this kind of preface that I'm doing now, you're going to sort of charge into that territory and, and make mistakes. So then, okay, so all that said, so just what is or who is this personality that indigenous Amazonian perceives, let's say, in tobacco? One potential therapeutic application of nicotine is um, in diabetic people who have at their extremities less blood vessels. You can put tobacco uh, a cream on these extremities and it encourages the creation of new blood vessels. But if you have a tumor, for example, uh, encouraging the creation of new blood vessels is going to empower the tumors. So you do not want to consume nicotine if you have tumors. You may want to use a nicotine cream if you are a diabetic and you suffer from a loss of blood vessels in your extremities. So this is very clearly nicotine is an extremely powerful substance and it can be a poison or it can be used as a remedy depending on the dosage and depending on the context. I mean, the, the way it's, the, the, the first way that it's used as a, a part of a therapeutic uh, approach in the Amazon is that the leaves themselves, fresh leaves are applied to wounds because they are analgesic, they're, they're painkillers. Amazonian shamans also blow smoke. On, as soon as anybody has a wound, they, they blow smoke on it. So these are the kinds of applications that are found uh, in the Amazon. Nowadays, People are doing research on how to use nicotine in, in many different ways. I mean, it seems to have, it seems to relieve people who suffer from schizophrenia. Uh, so it has a similar uh, impact on people with Parkinson's. There's a list of, of illnesses where nicotine, I mean, it, it's called medicinal nicotine. And there, are, there are nicotine patches that they give people. One of the things probably we should tell people is that you know, this is something that you would do with an experienced tobacco shaman. It's not something to try on your own because it's very dangerous. 
I'd like to well, to um, talking a little bit about ayahuasca because there's uh, sure. a, a well, lot of interest know, in that. I'd actually like to say that I don't use tobacco. Uh -huh. um, you know, I mean, you were asking me questions about it. It's true. I co-authored the book on it, um, but um, I respect the plant a lot. It's very powerful. Uh, there's a lot of research that's going on it. It's very important to indigenous Amazonian people, but I myself don't work with the plant. Yeah. Let's, um, let's talk about ayahuasca because there's a huge uh, renaissance of people going to either the Amazon and Peru or lots of people in, in North America that, and in Europe that are now doing uh, ayahuasca journeys and ceremonies with ayahuasqueros. Can you give us some background and talk a little bit about the varieties and the differences between the yellow and black and how it's made and the ceremony and some of the things like that so we can get a, a good sense of the impact of taking ayahuasca. You know, I'd start by saying that like back in 1985, when I had uh, my first ayahuasca experience, hardly anybody had heard of ayahuasca. The, the travelers going through Peru at that point, you know, they, they, they could be hippies going to Cusco, but they'd never heard of ayahuasca. If anybody had heard of it, it, it was, it had been described in the ethnographic literature by people like Michael Harner as, you know, making you vomit or, or also in the Yahi letters by uh, Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs as making you vomit fluorescent serpents and, uh, and so forth. I mean, there, there, there was no uh, big hurry uh, in 1985 among Westerners to go down and, and to get into this uh, um, brew, uh, which is a very powerful hallucinogen and a, a, a very uh, remarkable visions. It also tends to purge you, so you vomit and defecate and so forth. Actually, my colleague Luis Eduardo Luna, who was studying ayahuasca uh, shamanism among uh, the mestizos in the uh, Pucallpa Niquitos area, right, right at, at that point in the early 1980s, he thought that it, it was a, a tradition that was about to disappear. He, he was working with four old informants, and uh, they had no apprentices. And he, that's one of the reasons why he was documenting it, and he published it. Uh, as his dissertation in 1986, because he, he wanted to stop that tradition from disappearing altogether, or he wanted to record it before it disappeared. And yet, 10 years later, people started heading down to uh, South America like, uh, like pilgrims. So something switched in the, the Western mindset. You know, actually, if you'd asked me, when I got back from Peru uh, here in Europe in 1987, I tried talking about ayahuasca to people because I thought the experience had been incredible. And, you know, it was a conversation stopper. It was at that point talking about hallucinogens that make you vomit fluorescent serpents. No, thank you. And I, if you'd asked me, I don't know, in 1991, do you think that it will ever become a, a, a fashion in the Western world? I'd say, look, there's no chance. Western people, they like uh, tasteless pills, like, I don't know, LSD or ecstasy or something. It's got to be sort of easy to swallow. None of these things that there's no way that Westerners are ever going to get into something that, that makes them vomit and so forth. They don't like vomiting. You know, trust me, this thing will never take off. Well, how wrong can you be? Uh, five, six years later, it, it, it started and, and then it's only grown and grown. So for some reason, 
not all Westerners, but uh, uh, some uh, um, a fringe of Westerners, as a growing fringe, has become willing to do a kind of a pilgrimage where you 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 go into this other approach to medicine. You experience this plant that has a radical impact on your body. You purge, and you you purge literally, but also energetically, people feel it, it suddenly, it's, it's as if the world of materialism and shopping just, just suddenly reached a, a tipping point and, and, and people felt ready to question it, purge it, and, and go into this radically different approach that actually what does ayahuasca do? It also puts your head and your body back in touch with each other. It puts you into a closer relationship with nature around you. I mean, these are the com- some of the things that it has been noticed as doing. And that those are some of the things that Westerners who have traveled to South America report that they are after. They're after alternatives to allopathic medicine, to the materialist values, to monotheistic religion, and so forth. This is what they, there's a dissertation by a woman called Evgenia Fotiu, came out in 2010. I think it's called From Shamans to Day Trippers. It's all about ayahuasca tourists in Iquitos and just who they are. And, and, you know, so she studied the Westerners who came to stay with the shamans. And yeah, but then obviously there, it opens up all kinds of possibilities of misunderstandings between, um, I mean, you know, your, your average Peruvian ayahuasquero has never taken the, uh, the oath, uh, the Hippocratic, Hippocratic oath of, you know, not touching the patients and so forth, nor do, have they ever claimed to be wise men from India or anything. I mean, these are practitioners who often identify with jaguars and anaconda and, and powerful predators. So there's been all kinds of abuse of female clients by Peruvian ayahuasqueros and misunderstandings at, at many levels. Uh, it's been complicated. It's also, I think, the, the intercultural interface around ayahuasca that, that has been going on in South America has also been interesting. And it's also fairly uh, traditional for shamans to be the intercultural uh, go-betweens Michael Tosig, the anthropologist, said of Iowa, of Yahe shamans in, in Colombia that they'd acted as the shock absorbers of history. They go uh, where the, the frontier is between the Indians and the colonists and where the genocide has occurred and where all the, the, the friction and death has happened, and they heal. So actually finding ayahuasca practitioners uh, active in this interface between Westerners and Peruvians or Colombians. This is fairly, one could say, traditional uh, for, the, for that. Uh, it, it really is not unusual that uh, ayahuasca should go together with intercultural kind of interactions like that. But that doesn't mean that that sort of does away with the complexities. And then when Westerners start taking ayahuasca back north and then become themselves ayahuasqueros, and then that adds another level of complexity to it. I'm not sure I should comment too much about it because I, I haven't really studied it and I don't really hang out in it that much. Uh, I mean, well, talk, I, I talk about your own personal experience of taking ayahuasca so people can get an idea. There's the ritual of 
the making of the ayahuasca, there's the fasting and the dieta. For people who want to learn about, you know, what is ayahuasca and how does it work? And can you share your own personal experience about that? Sure. sure. I mean, my own personal experience is what it is. My view has been like, after the first powerful ayahuasca experience that I had in 1985, basically, I took eight years to think about it, to find a way of talking about it, and then to, to research it and to even write a book about it before I even took it again. Actually, I took it a total of four times during my field work, but the three other times I, I didn't take enough. I was kind of afraid and I didn't really want to go into that much. And so I only had one powerful experience. And then I only drank again eight years later, once I'd finished my book, The Cosmic Serpent. I, I did take psilocybin mushrooms in Switzerland whilst I was researching the book. So it's not as if I was uh, you know, shying away from hallucinogens. But to me, ayahuasca has always seemed like something that, and also because I, I work professionally in the Peruvian Amazon, I have the possibility every year of going there. Uh, for me, ayahuasca is like a, uh, the concord of hallucinogens. So very, even though I can take psilocybin mushrooms on my own, kind of like a four-seater airplane, when you get into the concord, you need a trained pilot. I'm not that interested in taking ayahuasca by myself. I think it's kind of too strong. And it's something that you only really get out of it. You need the singing and the person there to look after you, and, and then you can really go into it. And so, so talk about the Icaros and, and you said in your book that uh, you actually, I've done a, a fair number of ayahuasca journeys. I've never heard the Icaros coming from inside me. I've certainly heard them from different shamans in different areas that I've done that. But let's talk, talk about the whole experience so people can get a sense of what it is. Yeah, um, well... You know, I, I've sat there, so, but since then, so I've probably, I don't know, taken it 50 or 60 or 70 times since then, um, you know, a couple times a year is a lot already. And um, it, it's always kind of an ordeal whenever it's always difficult to swallow. And then you sit there, I, I often get information about, you know, how stupid I've been, or I get, I, I get, I see things. I see myself from above and see where I messed up and stuff like that. So you see, that's and that's often pretty uh, uh, interesting, but it's not easy. And then it's true. The the uh, ikaros are these songs that these sort of simple, melodious, looping songs that they sing. So you're sitting there in the dark, and that's all there is. Is just you hardly, you, sometimes you see nothing, but you hear these songs. And then of course the ayahuasca does things to your spatial sonic perception. And so it seems fairly, uh, well, ventriloquist and, you know, it's kind of disorienting. And the, the, actually with this extremely simple technology, which is you swallow this vegetal brew and then you sing in the dark, uh, it transports you into these realms that you didn't know existed. Um, and so you can be precip precipitated back into uh, your childhood or you can see, uh, uh, sometimes I think it's kind of like if you have a chess game, you know, you could run through a uh, hundred different possibilities and you could see what would happen. So then you think, okay, I'll be giving a talk next month in such a place. Well, if I could, if I started like this, 
And then you can see, oh no, then that would, okay. So then you, and so it, it speeds up theoretical reflection or ideations. It's not just visions. Oddly, the, the songs seem to, seem to guide the visions or, or, or call them. Sometimes you can be almost like drowning in your visions. It's too much, you're seeing too much stuff. Well, they suggest that you concentrate on the melody of the song and it, it can be like a lifeline. You just concentrate on the song and it, it'll pull you out of that, that, that drowning in, in the visions. So these, these practitioners come and they sing on you, which is like they enchant you. That's what it means. They chant on you. And, and it's like the, 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 the music, the melody kind of tunes you like as if we were ourselves musical instruments or, or, or tuning forks. And they uh, tune the tuning fork with their melody. That's sometimes how, how it uh, appears. Other times, it can be just tobacco smoke once again. At the end of the ceremony, they come and they have perfumed water and tobacco smoke. And they put this on the top of your head and they, they blow it around your ears and your face. And it, it's like getting a, a shower, a, a crystalline and luminous shower of perfume and smoke. I, I actually don't like perfume, nor do I like people blowing smoke on me particularly. But when I've had ayahuasca, there's almost nothing I like more than that moment. It's always, it's after about three hours in, you're already coming down a little bit. And, and once again, it sort of grounds it all into the top of the head and the body. So th these guys, they, they know a, a kind of, and that's also what seemed uh, so striking to me the, back in 1985. It seemed like they know how to navigate the world of hallucination. And you know, in, in Western science, it's like it, we can't even talk about the modification of consciousness. That's, that's what it was like back then. These guys are, are pros. So, and actually, what's so interesting about modified consciousness is that it's also a window on consciousness. So here are technicians of modified consciousness working with uh, smells and sound and also plant hallucinogens. So that's what I can say about it. But I, I'd like to add that, you know, it may sound fancy to some or, you know, attractive or romantic, but once again, I, each time it's like an ordeal. I compare it really like to going to the dentist, you know, <laughs> to, to get your, get your uh, or going to the hygienist at, at, at the minimum. So if you can do it every six months, it, it's never very agreeable, but once it's over, it feels great. <laughs> Talk about any any adverse side effects or the what would be called the dark side of ayahuasca. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, uh, no hallucinogens. There are for people with sort of psychotic issues, or you know, people um, people with schizophrenia should abstain absolutely. So, and you know, what needs to happen before anybody gets any ayahuasca? Some kind of screening about that. Once you screen out. Uh, the the obvious who should not be using um, hallucinogens because it's true that even though it's a, a plant brew it is a powerful hallucinogen and that should be clear and that actually one of the problems with hallucinogens is that you can never know how borderline you are until you actually take one and it can precipitate people into a kind of a psychotic space that can be difficult to get back from 
ayahuasca actually most of the time it's it's uh, uh, strikingly innocuous in the way that uh, i don't know more than 90% of people can can take it and they get they go into these wild spaces and then they come back the next day and hey presto they come back to themselves within 48 hours but some people have a hard time coming back and actually one of the things is that it's hard to integrate what you can see and learn and get out of ayahuasca in the Western world. You know, we're taking buses, we're catching airplanes, we're getting up with alarm clocks at 6 a.m. We have a boss that yells at us. We got all kinds of things going. We're getting bills from the bank. And, you know, it's, and then you have to deal with all that. If you've gone too far out of all of that and into the ayahuasca Amazonian world, it can be pretty discombobulating. Um, so that's also, you know, it, 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 the, you have to be careful of, they call it integration, whatever you want to call it. Once you've had these experiences, you have to be careful about how you come back to yourself. But the other thing is that just like with other hallucinogens, it, it takes your defenses down. I mean, that's the whole point is it's a psychedelic. It reveals the psyche. It peels away sort of layers of protection. And you can... So your, your psyche, stuff that's deep down in there that doesn't usually come out, comes out. It can be trauma. It can be memories. It can be things that, 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 that need actually to come out. But then when they come out, sometimes it, it, can, it can be too much. It really depends on, on, on who you are. So, and it, it depends on with whom you do it. In other words, when you take ayahuasca, you're putting yourself in the hands of somebody. The, the fellow who's administering it, or, I mean, nowadays there are women who would administer ayahuasca, and I think that would avoid, you know, the, the more one has to do with uh, female ayahuasqueras, the less there are any risks of uh, sort of personal abuse. Yeah. But yes, it, it, it really does, depending on um, who you take ayahuasca with, who you are entrusting your psyche to, you know, you, you have to be careful because these are, are moments where you're, you're very suggestible. And that's the double-edged sword of these, uh, let's call them tools at this point, because like it's true with LSD, it's true with psilocybin, it's true with any of these hallucinogens or psychedelics, call them as you wish, shamanic plants, you know. What's and, the difference between visions and hallucinations? Right, well, different people will give different definitions, but I, I asked that question to my co-author, Rafael uh, Chanchari. In his view, there are visions that you get from the plant that he calls bona fide, bona fide visions. But there are also times when you're projecting or you're getting involved and you're imagining things and then you're seeing them. So if you take what you see at that point at face value, you'll be misleading yourself because these are in fact just your own projections. They're illusions uh, or they're what you wanted to see. Uh, or what you suspected, but they're not true vision that you have received. So then I said, okay, well, so how do you uh, know the difference? He said, well, oh, well, it takes time and experience. So what if you want to translate that, that means that in your early years of taking ayahuasca, because to, to be able to master such a powerful teacher plant, they say you need at least 20 years to even start mastering it, really. You know, so before you rush into becoming a, a proclaiming yourself to be an ayahuasca shaman, you, you consider yourself for 
a long time as, a, as an apprentice, where you're still learning to, to understand that difference, for example. There's lots of different things you've got to learn, but that's certainly one of them. One of the things I'd love to kind of begin to wrap it up here is to look at, okay, so let's say you're, you actually go to Peru or Ecuador, or one of the places where many people are going. First, there's the ritual of making it. Then also there's the person who's going to take it has a particular diet, dieta, to follow in order to do that. And, and then there's the ceremony of it. And then there's the retelling of the story. Can you talk a little bit about what's involved in those different aspects and the, and the actual making of the ayahuasca is a, mm. at least full day, uh, at least full day uh, ceremony. And of course, what activates there's pure ayahuasca, and then there's the kind that's activated with the, uh, forgot the names of the... Uh, yeah, I can talk about that. Uh, yeah. I'll, I'll try to be uh, concise, um, even though, once again, it's complicated. Um, so ayahuasca is a liana. Uh, the liana itself contains uh, several alkaloids that are called beta-carbolines, beta harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharmine, that are uh, lightly psychoactive, but that are also seriously health enhancing, at least as far as the harmine is concerned. And there is a tradition of taking pure ayahuasca vine among certain people. It's uh, a purge, but it also gives subtle uh, visions and lots of understandings. It's, a, it's less spectacular than what many people consider to be uh, ayahuasca. It turns out that Westerners have a kind of a fascination with DMT. And there is one variation on ayahuasca, which contains leaves from the chacruna plant, which contain DMT. And so there is a traditional usage of DMT, but it's important to understand that traditionally around the Amazon, the Western Amazon, the ayahuasca vine and the brew that you make uh, from it by boiling the vine for hours is um, is, is then used as a, as a basis to study other plants. So you can put in, uh, ayahuasca is a word like cocktail. If it's not just pure liana, it can have coca, it can, it can have tobacco, it can have uh, chacruna, which is DMT, it can have datura, it, it can contain, so these, not only the alkaloids that are in the vine, it can contain nicotine or it can contain cocaine, or DMT, or Datura, or a, a mix of those. And so understanding that the word ayahuasca actually means cocktail, the question must be, if when you are a, a, a novice and you're showing up in the Amazon, what's in the cocktail, doc? Mm -hmm. You know, and for example, if they say, oh, I, I put a couple of leaves of tobacco in there, and you've never had tobacco before, you want to be careful because you can, that's a, several deaths that have been attributed to ayahuasca have been due to, most probably, because there never was a sort of a legal investigation, but to nicotine overdose. Ayahuasca is remarkably safe in terms of, you know, if you take just the vine itself, or even if you take the iteration with the DMT in it, it takes like something, it would take something like two liters of ayahuasca to kill somebody. You know, it's like 20 times the effective dose. With alcohol, it's only 10 times. You know, you, you can die 
by drinking 10 glasses of, of whiskey in short order. So um, ayahuasca is fairly safe in that you won't die unless it has nicotine in it, unless it has datura in it, it depending on, on what has been put in it. So like that really is the first question. And the, it, this has also been studied, this woman, Hale um, Kasik, she, she took like a, about a hundred samples of ayahuasca used in different parts of the Amazon basin now, half of them in shamanic centers for Westerners, half of them in more tra traditional contexts. And she found on average 57% more DMT in the neo-shamanic samples. In other words, Westerners want a show, kind of like Yosemite Sam, if you remember, you know, the, the guy in Bugs Bunny who come into the zoo and say, I want a show. So when they go down there, they want, they want a show, they want fireworks, they want DMT ayahuasca, and, and that's what gets served to them. But actually, there are other kinds of ayahuasca. I, I actually think the, the, the vine alone ayahuasca is very interesting. It's very subtle. The colors are less spectacular. That's true. Um, but the experience is not less interesting. The meditations are very interesting. And, and the health enhancement, actually very uh, good for the immune system. And in the current pandemic, uh, I would like to have some pure vine extract with me uh, right now and wouldn't hesitate to take it as a sort of permanent health enhancer. Really, I take it for health reasons. So uh, ayahuasca, it's not, it's not like something like wine. Wine is fermented grape juice, and it's nothing other than that. You know, and, and it's fermented maybe up to 15%, but anything between 5 and 15% of alcohol made uh, with, from fermented grape juice, that's wine. And the active uh, ingredient is ethanol, in other words, alcohol. Ayahuasca, it can, it has harmine, harmaline, tetrahydroharmine, okay. It might have, once again, cocaine, nicotine, other psychoactive. It's, it's a psychoactive cocktail and its ingredients can vary. So you, you really want to know what you're getting into with, with ayahuasca. That, that would really be the first thing. The second thing is that, you know, you're, you're supposed to prepare your body and your mind. And you, you, so it's, it, this is old psychedelic knowledge, even with LSD, set and setting, you know, so your mindset and then the setting in which you take it. These are very important. If you go into it in sort of a negative mindset and you're in a, a sort of disagreeable setting, you're going to have a terrible experience. That's how these... Um, that's how these uh, psychedelics work. And, and ayahuasca is the same. So you, you really want to sort of think about it, think what you want to get out of it, uh, be calm, uh, breathe, you know, avoid certain foods. Uh, you gotta, if you want to know it, the full thing, you got to read the book, but, you know, clean your body and your mind before you go into it. That's if you want to get the most out of it. It's going to clean your body anyway. If you didn't clean your body, it'll clean it for you. And, um, and there it is. And then once again, you know, what happens afterwards? Like the worst thing is to have a very powerful ayahuasca experience and then at 8 a.m. to have to go to the airport. I mean, but if people want to do that, they can do that. But it, it's just kind of stupid, really. Yeah. So we're getting, we're actually out of time. But just to wrap it up, 
anything that you'd like to tell the listeners just about you know that your book is uh plant teachers ayahuasca tobacco and the pursuit of knowledge so anything just to sum it up tobacco ayahuasca just plant medicine in general that you'd like to share with our listeners yeah what what i'd say about the, at least these two plants that amazonians consider teachers is that they're they're powerful and they, they can be dangerous and uh, if you're going to work with them, it's worth knowing about them. Kind of, yeah, doing your homework a little bit. And that, that was the idea. This is a short book. And it's meant as, you know, this is what you need to know. This the, the the minimum you need to know about these two powerful plants that are Amazonian. Uh, that's where they come from. And so this is what Amazonian people say you need to know if you're going to work with these plants. And then this is the scientific complement that gives some kind of uh, molecular background to what the Amazonians are, say, are saying. And then you can think about it. And, you know, there's 1.2 billion tobacco smokers in the world. Um, most of them don't know this stuff. And then, I don't know, there's a couple million ayahuasca users. It, it can, it, it, the, the idea of the book was to get the Amazonian voice available to people because there's a lot of people now talking about ayahuasca, but you don't get to hear the uh, Amazonian voice that much. So that was also the intention behind the book. It was to make yeah. it available in a kind of a simple and clear way. Well, it's a really great and very well-researched little book. And Dr. Jeremy Narby, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be on We Earth Radio and to share your wisdom and experience with us. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. Um, answering your questions, and they were all interesting. <laughs> Thank you. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.